till the walls pile high with English dead. <laughs> Verily, to the window, <laughs> to the wall, dare I say until the very sweat drips. Okay. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at BaltimoreSportsReport.com. You're listening to Baltimore Ons. The home of the all-weather fan. My name is Sam Dingman. This is Alan Smith. Let's get stupid. Baltimoreans. Hello, Baltimoreans. How are y'all doing? Hope it is excellent. Can you hear the false cheer in our voices? Because it's been a rough first week, Baltimoreans. <laughs> Indeed it has. But it's everybody's second favorite time of the week, Baltimoreans time. What's their first favorite time of the week? Uh, I was going for Orioles time, but then I realized the Orioles play daily and not weekly. <laughs> and so there's a there's a period of time which wraps between each episode of Baltimore Hans, which we're calling Orioles time. And time, if you've seen the television show True Detective, is a flat circle. <laughs> Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to episode 89 of Baltimore Hans, the show that, like the insufferable Orioles broadcaster Mike Bordick, has finally found the strength to make a startling confession. Yeah, no idea at all. Oh yes, it can be easy, morons. <laughs> In light of the Orioles' poor start to the season, to conclude that the situation is dire and immediate changes are warranted. But the fact, friends, is that although it feels like it's already been an excruciating 2011-style month, it has barely been a week. <laughs> and what we need to do is find productive ways of distracting ourselves from the temptation to pull the fiasco lever. I personally have... Um... <clears throat> distracted myself by not watching the Orioles. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not entirely what we want either, Smith. <laughs> because if people don't watch the, watch the Orioles, then they have no real reason to listen to this. That's true. And then that's we're true. out of a fake job. <laughs> but this show, as always, is replete with audiophonic sounds and signals designed to distract you from the Orioles' on-field performance thus far. We'll begin, as we always do, with our most popular recurring segment, the Jeff Tackett Franchise Report. Jeff Tackett, of course, grew up with dreams of being a successful major league catcher, but in the end, it turned out that Tackett couldn't hack it. We've also got a very <laughs> special edition of our trademarked seventh inning sketch, you may have noticed, morons, that we have become one of the internet's leading sources of previously undisclosed audio recordings by minor baseball celebrities. And this week, we've done it again! <laughs> we can't reveal our sources, but it turns out that Peter Angelos has been keeping a private audio journal, and we've obtained some of the recordings, which we will play for you tonight on the program. You are probably listening to this show uh, through the Baltimore Sports Report Network, but just in case you're not... You should get on over to BaltimoreSportsReportNetwork.com. Uh, they they do a lot of original reporting over there. None of it's quite at the level of what I think we have here with Peter Angelo's tapes. We'd we'd but like there's to some, there's some good stuff. We'd like to take this opportunity actually to say to BaltimoreSportsReport.com, you know, step it up. Yeah, because if we're scooping you, that's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> but we are a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network, along with a cadre <laughs> that's the word i was looking for i went f and then i was like flambe <laughs> we are a member of the baltimore sports report network network along with a flambe 
of Sister Wife Podcasts. With a very low net worth. <laughs> <laughs> the network with the low net work. The, fuck. <laughs> the network with the low net worth. That's Boom. less funny but more true. <laughs> no. Anyway. Well, what are we talking about? <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, well, before we get to all of that, ladies and gentlemen, 89 is more than just a grade I was fortunate to get away with in ninth grade geometry. <laughs> it's also the episode number for this week, and I think we can all agree that means something. <laughs> exactly what, however, is not clear, which is why we turn at this juncture to my esteemed colleague, Alan Smith. Well, as Sam, as you've already pointed out, we need some distractions this week. So we turn to the number 89 to distract ourselves from the grim beginnings of the 2014 season. And the good news is there are many statistically significant reasons that number 89 is an adequate number for those distractions. Did you know, Baltimoreans, that the NCAA gives out the Elite 89 Award to participants in each of the NCAA's 89 championship finals? with the highest grade point average. I did not know that. But apparently every year we crown an elite 89 in Division Three field hockey, as well as national collegiate rifling, as well as right now playing in the Connecticut versus uh, Kentucky game, a Division One basketball elite 89. This is amazing to me because I, as a sports nerd, was completely unaware of the existence of this group of 89 scholar athletes. Even Wikipedia only manages to list the sports that are awarded thusly, but not the people who actually receive the award. It makes one wonder if Kara Pioski, Division II volleyball player from Concordia St. Paul, who is holding down a cool 399 in biology as she helps the Golden Bears into the finals, is even aware that she herself is part of this elite squad. Actually, you know, this amount of recognition for the scholar part of the scholar-athlete is actually more depressing than it is distracting. <laughs> what else you got for us, number 89? Well, <clears throat> it turns out that Helen's Law is a principle that one in 89 natural pregnancies ends in the birth of twins. One in about 89 squared pregnancies ends in triplets. And one in 89 to the third pregnancies ends in quadruplets. How crazy is that? The fact that our universe is governed by a set of rules with the mathematical certainty of base 89 as it comes to pregnancies is so crazy and measurable and regular that it literally makes my brain hurt. Somehow we've evolved enough as a species to recognize that Helen's Law is a thing that is universal across humanity, but we've not yet evolved enough to actually do anything about the 12,000 peer-reviewed studies in a recent UN report that suggests that global warming is going to make life increasingly nasty, brutish, and short for everyone going forward. Well, shit. <laughs> I seem to have done that again. Okay, uh, there has to be some sort of positive 89 story somewhere on the internet this week. Any story that contains 89 million dirhams can't be bad, right? Wrong! It turns out that the folks in United Arab Emirates spent 89 million dirhams, or about $24 million for those of you who uh, work in the American-based currencies, for 90 low-digit license plates this Saturday. That's correct. Sahid Abdal Ghafir Khuri, the man who walked away with the license plate bearing the single-digit one, 
bid 52.2 million dirhams, or about 14.2 million dollars for the privilege of having that license plate. It is not huge compared to my family's fortune, Mr. Khoury was quoted as saying. The price is fair. After all, who among us does not want to be number one? You know, despite all that being horribly depressing, it has put me in a better mindset about the Orioles' introduction to the season. So thanks, <laughs> number 89. Distractions don't always work, but some perspective is usually warranted. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to the Jeff Tackett Franchise Report, where each week we take the most interesting news items from Birdland and beyond and assign them a ranking from strikeout to home run. Item number one, which has everyone here at Hootenanny Studios, including Mr. Mish the Cat, on Suicide Watch, is a second outing from Ubaldo Jimenez that looked a lot like his first outing. He went four and two-thirds today against the Yankees, in which he issued five walks and was chased from the game after reaching 109 pitches. At this point, it looks like our rotation is Chris Tillman and four people that make my head hurt. Sam, how do you rate the current Jimenez situation? I rate the current Jimenez situation as a Ubaldo Jimenez start in May (laughs) of 2013. Which is to say, I don't think that anybody could have honestly looked at themselves in the mirror, first off, and said, (laughs) I should wear this orange shirt to work today, which is something that I did. Um, uh, Secondly, I don't think that anybody could have looked at themselves in the mirror (laughs) and said, Ubaldo Jimenez is going to be exactly as good as he was at his best moments last year every time out. Ubaldo Jimenez, we know this, has been an up-and-down pitcher over the course of his major league career and uh, has always come with a certain amount of high whip in his giddy-up, a certain (laughs) amount of walk propensity, and clearly, so far, that has been on display. It's also worth noting that in his first outing, he was up against the Red Sox, who make you throw an extraordinary number of pitches no matter who you are. So if your name is Ubaldo Jimenez, uh, <laughs> break out the ice packs uh, right away. Um, and his second outing was against the Yankees, who, for all of the shortcomings that that team is likely to have this year, are still a pretty terrifying offensive group. Uh, so I don't think it's totally fair to judge him harshly on the basis of these first two starts. And I also think that it's important to point out that neither start was a fiasco. Mm. Uh, he only gave up four runs his first time out and he only gave up, uh, I guess it was four earned today, but I'm going to blame Britain for walking in the fourth one. I guess what I'm saying is that, uh, so far to me, Jimenez is pitching a lot like a guy named Ubaldo Jimenez, who I've seen pitch for the last few years, who takes a little while to get going. But once he gets going and the weather gets warm and his pitches move a little bit more, is going to strike some guys out, going to give up a lot of fly balls, but is also going to move the ball around a lot. um, And that's going to be enough to get you through six, maybe seven innings most times out with some pretty uh, ugly stat lines. That's what we bought. You know what I mean? 
Um, so you're you're gonna go with the uh, the the quote from former Arizona Cardinals head coach Dennis Green. They are who we thought they were. <laughs> yeah, I mean, pretty much, pretty much exactly the uh, the the expectation that you had for Jimenez to date. Yeah, and I think it's also fair to point out. Look, uh, Jimenez last time was uh, faced up against John Lackey. John Lackey's a guy who we should have been able to score some runs again, run runs against, and we didn't. Uh, this time he was up against Kuroda, and Kuroda is a very good pitcher who, on top of that, always gives us a terrible, terrible time. Yeah, that's um, true. So, you know, Jimenez didn't pitch well. Did he lose us the game in either of these first two starts? No. No. Um, I would say we did almost nothing to support him, which we haven't done for any of our starting pitchers so far this year. And, uh, you know, do you want your number two starter who you're paying $12 million a year to pitch a little bit better than he's pitching right now? Yes, but I don't think there's any reason just yet to su- to suggest that Ubaldo Jimenez isn't going to do that. Well, Sam, it's interesting that you went that way because this is the first time in any of the Jeff Tackett franchise report where we've actually had a correct answer to this question, <laughs> which was a walk. <laughs> You should have given this a walk (laughs) for many of actually the same reasons that uh, you have just mentioned, which is that a walk is often uh, not as uh, statistically damaging or as bad in this flow of a game um, as a single or a double, um, but can still get some runs across. But, you know, I think that it it, it does not... um, does not bother me all that much that Jimenez is not going yet. I think you're right. He will get going and that April is never a good month in the Jimenez camp. Uh, it does bother me a little bit that the guy who we're paying $50 million is also turning things over to the bullpen in the fifth inning. Um, and I would like him to at least eat a couple more innings. I think that that's one of the things that we really tried to acquire this offseason. I mean, I know that his ERA may be a little bit high. I know he may not be pitching like Verlander-style dominance every time out. But I, I kind of had hoped that he was going to get us a little further into games. Agreed. Um, Agreed. So a walk is a bad thing for Jimenez. I yeah. think that, that that many pitches, 109 through four and two-thirds, is something that he's really going to have to get under control because I, I'm already seeing like the number of um, innings that our bullpen is going to have to pitch skyrocketing here, and that's an alarming alarming thing. I agree with you completely. And I think the one of the things that hearing you say that is making me, uh, is reminding me of, is last year when we acquired Scott Feldman. Yeah. And I think that's actually a useful way of looking at it, because we basically signed Ubaldo Jimenez to replace Scott Feldman. That's true. Um, and Who, I by think... by the way, is blowing up so far for doing, the Astros. <laughs> doing very well. Um, but the thing that I think is notable, was notable to me in watching Scott Feldman when he came over to the team last year, is that Scott Feldman is a guy who is not an excellent pitcher, but who knows how to pitch yeah, and who is going to get into a situation where he gets a lot of guys on and doesn't have the electric stuff to just strike everybody out and get out of it, but he's going to minimize damage when he gets in trouble. And he's never going to get you into a situation where he just lets the whole thing totally explode and get out of hand. And from what I've seen so far, that's actually what Jimenez has mostly been able to do. Obviously, it's a very small sample size, but in both of his first two starts, there were situations in those games where things could have gone completely off the rails. And instead, both times, he was able to minimize the admittedly self-inflicted damage and keep the game within reach for the offense. The offense needs to be able to pick him up, and so I guess ultimately what I feel is that while I'm not at all happy 
with the two outings that Jimenez has given us so far. I also feel like as much blame needs to go on the offense as it does on him this early in the season. Item number two on the Jeff Tackett franchise report, usually... Miguel Cabrera and Mike Trout wait until the season is over and the awards are being handed out to fight for headlines, but this year, they decided to get a head start. As all of you know, Miguel Cabrera signed a mammoth 10-year, $248 million contract extension with the Detroit Tigers, which was big news until a few days later (laughs) when the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim gave Mike Trout a six-year, $144.5 million extension, meaning that both players will become the first baseball players to receive $30 million salaries for a single year of playing a child's game professionally. (laughs) Alan Smith, there is obviously a lot to talk about here, but what is your ranking of Extension Bonanza 2014? I'm going to give this a uh, challenge on instant replay, which against all odds is still upheld. Now, I think this is particularly relevant when it comes to these giant extensions, because every time someone signs one, everyone rings their, you know, rings their hands and says this is a terrible decision and what are you doing paying Miguel Cabrera that absurd amount of money? It's going to be he, until he is uh, in his 40s, there's no way his body's going to hold up. We know this is going to happen. It happens every single time again and again and again. wait, we have another person to do it. Let's do it again and get it <laughs> equally as wrong. It's amazing to me that there is no person And this is, I think, in some ways the problem with capitalism, Sam, because there's no person who is willing to put a stop to this constant increase. There's no one who's willing to say, no, look, this is silly. This is not going to work for anyone. We should stop doing this because those people end up being the Padres and no one wants to go to their games. (laughs) Well, what if you are somebody like, say, for example, the owner of a Major League Baseball team, say, for example, the billionaire CEO of Little Caesars Pizza, say, for example, (laughs) and you actually have the option of setting such a precedent by not doing this, and I mean, I think in most situations, most people would say ethically that's true. I mean, it's very difficult to argue that, uh, you know, a player should not have the money, but the guy who owns the CEO, he was the CEO of Domino's Pizza, should have the money. I'm not sure that he should have the money either. So I'm not sure I'm more worried about a player having it well, than him having it. I think it's more a question of would Mike Illich, who I believe is the owner of the Detroit Tigers, be doing the city of Detroit? Uh, more of a solid by giving Miguel Cabrera $30 million a year or by giving, say, the Detroit Public Schools $30 million a year <laughs> or, say, the uh, Detroit Municipal Police Force uh, $30 million a year. I think my answer to that is clear. <laughs> uh, I'm going to give this uh, a split of a day-night doubleheader <laughs> where in the first game... Chris Tillman throws a perfect game, and in the second game, Ubaldo Jimenez gives up 14 runs in two innings, and (laughs) uh, Matt Wieters gets his ankle broken and is out for the rest of the season. And we gain no ground on anybody. (laughs) Yeah. The reason I say that is because I actually think the, the Mike Trout extension, though the amount of money that he's being paid is absurd... Of all of the extensions that have been signed in the last 20 years that we have sat here and marveled at, this one actually, if any of them makes sense, this one makes sense. And we can sit here and rail and complain about the dollar value that 
of of the extension that he was given. But you're talking about a guy who is universally acknowledged to be not just the best player in baseball currently, but probably the most exciting player in baseball in the last, let's say, ten years. Um, and he's being Fair. and he's being paid what is unfortunately market value in Major League Baseball right now for that level of contribution. And that contract is being given to him at an age where statistically it's actually more likely that he gets better than that he regresses. Uh, but even if he doesn't improve at all, you're still talking about on the field contributions that befit the highest salary in the league. So if there was ever one of these extensions that makes sense and that is probably really good for the team and probably helps build uh, a a coalition of fans who feel like the ownership is invested in them and all that intangible stuff that supposedly accompanies these, these contract negotiations. I think that's it. So that's the, the Chris Tillman throwing the Maddox in case you haven't figured that out. <laughs> Got it. The Cabrera contract is a, it's a disaster. It's yeah. an absolute disaster, especially because, and I, I would have to double check the details on this, but I think this contract replaces two years that were still left on Miguel Cabrera's contract. So what they basically did is they said, not only are we betting that over the next two years, you're going to get better than you've been for the last two years, which is pretty tough to do from an offensive standpoint. We're also saying that in the years after that, when you're at the age where almost no baseball players outside of the steroid era have improved their production, we're going to start increasing your salary at that point, which again is something it's not the first time one of these contracts has been given out. <laughs> right. But I think it's important to look at Miguel Cabrera and the type of player he is and say like, yes, right now his hands are very quick. And yes, right now he can get to every single pitch no matter where it is in the strike zone. Yes, Preach. right now his bat speed is amazing. Horrifying. But you've basically made a $250 million bet that the worst case scenario is David Ortiz. Yeah. And David Ortiz, because because as Cabrera gets older, he's clearly doomed to be a designated hitter. With the body type that he has, uh, that's, that's the best that you can hope for. Uh, there have not been too many David Ortiz's. And notably, the Red Sox are not paying David Ortiz $30 million a year. No. And David Ortiz is at least as valuable in an intangible sense to the city of Boston as Miguel Cabrera is to the city of Detroit. And I would almost argue more so. Because David Ortiz so purposely makes himself into that person. Right. And he has not been able to successfully convince the Red Sox that he's worth this much. So... And, I mean, the the amazing thing is that... Uh, I agree with everything you say. I, the only thing that I have a problem with is the idea that, um, despite what you correctly uh, analyze as Trout's market value, um, that the market bears that. <laughs> yeah <laughs> i just think that that's an absurd thing to have at a market value right well and i agree with the thing you say too which is that at a certain point uh this nonsense isn't going to stop and we're, we're not going to stop uh greatly enriching individuals who are able to reach certain statistical thresholds at the expense of the rest of the team and by extension the rest of the franchise and by extension the city in which the franchise plays Unless somebody takes a stand and says, uh, that's just not the kind of deal that we're going to make. Item number three on the Jeff Tackett franchise report. 
is that there is a new MLS expansion happening uh, in Atlanta. So as an avowed soccer fan, I am for any time that soccer is expanding in the U.S., and I'm for it going to the ATL. But as mentioned previously on this show, the good people of Atlanta are already on the hook for literally billions of taxpayer dollars in new stadiums over the next couple of years, and they already don't appear to have enough money to run a single snowplow, much less the number of snowplows that one would need to keep a city's road operational. Sam, tell me how I should feel about this as a sports and also progressive nut. (laughs) Uh, Well, I, I admittedly don't know... Uh, anything about soccer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's not true. I know that the, uh, it is commonly played in shorts and a t-shirt. I know that, um, I know that, uh, the acronym FIFA is involved. I don't know what it stands for. (laughs) Uh, I assume it is not FIFA as in FIFA Las Vegas. Close though. Las Vegas. Yep. Uh, Las Vegas. I know that Las Vegas would be um, a great name for a fictional fan- fantasy metropolis where fairies go to gamble, Las Vegas. <laughs> so that's what I can tell you about soccer. I okay. just wanted to establish it's, that. It's a limited repertoire. <laughs> off the top. Okay, okay. Uh, so with that said, that I don't know anything about soccer... <laughs> Um, I, I would instead like to approach this from a different angle. The the ranking that I will give it is Jason Giambi having a major league contract this year, <laughs> which is to say, okay, fine, <laughs> but you know what you're getting. Right. And the reason I say that is because it's clear that major league soccer wants to be talked about in the same breath as the NFL, the NBA, and major league baseball, when in reality... We talk about them after we talk about the NHL, after we talk about NCAA basketball, which we maybe talk about before we talk about the NHL anyway. Right. And maybe even before we talk about baseball. <laughs> I, I mean, it, this is clearly Major League Soccer just attempting to muscle its way into the elite brand status that these other professional sports organizations enjoy and get everything that comes with it, which means if that happens, then we have another one of these giant fuck-off corrupt motherships that is twisted and evil in the same ways that we have documented on this show the way that Major League Baseball and the NFL and the NBA are twisted and evil and corrupt. So if you're a soccer fan and you live in Atlanta, I guess this is good for you, but I would hope much as we were sort of talking about with the contract situation, that there's somebody who is in a position of leadership with MLS who is looking at, for example, Roger Goodell's compensation in the NFL mm-hmm. or the fact or all of the bad press that the NFL got for not paying taxes on its absurd amounts of revenue and saying, if nothing else, when we get there, I don't want us to be seen the same way. Um, so... As I said all those words, it stopped being equivalent to Jason Giambi having a major league contract this year and started to be more about uh, sort of an audacity of scope situation. Uh-huh. Like, I think we know that this guy can't hit off-speed pitches and is only a passable defender, but for some reason we feel <laughs> like he may be a Neil Walker in the making. Right. Um, so I guess I, I, I hope... 
that that's the case with MLS. I hope that uh, if they get to the size and scope that they want to be at, that they don't turn out to be just another um, terrible ship of rich idiots. Well, I'm going to give it uh, a a Albert Pujols double <laughs> that ends up being just barely a single because he can't get down to first base mm. like he used to be able to. Mm. Here's why. Because Albert Pujols, uh, I guess before the Trout signing, was uh, a measurable percentage of the overall budget for the Angels team. Um, you know, he was probably 30% of all that they were spending on baseball players, if not more. Um, I don't have that number off the top of my head, but it, it, his contract was a large piece of the puzzle. And as you watch him limp down to first base and not be able to get to second, you realize that was probably a bad decision. I don't think that anyone is going to, uh, in the first couple years of the Atlanta expansion, name your team here, uh, are going to have a big problem with the team being there. I think what they're going to realize in about five or seven years when the city of Atlanta collapses in on itself and goes bankrupt like the city of Detroit has, that this was a misallocation of funds that was sort of another in a long series of misallocations of funds. But everything I've looked at in Atlanta suggests that as like many other large southern cities, there is a tech bubble and there is a technology bubble and that and that that is really the only thing that is keeping these cities from being like Detroit and that those are bubbles and they're not going to be able to continue. And what's happening in Atlanta right now, one of the reasons why that snowstorm was so bad and we saw all those pictures of Atlanta's looking like the Walking Dead with like, you know, the, the open lane of traffic and the, the lane of traffic that's totally jammed full of people who are unable to get home in the snow is because little bits of Atlanta keep falling off. Which is to say little rich suburbs keep incorporating as their own cities and leaving the urban center, which is literally the same thing that happened in Detroit. So Detroit unto itself didn't have all that much wealth loss. The city of Detroit is a barren hellscape. The ring directly around Detroit is full of rich suburbs where all the people with the money went. The same thing's happening to Atlanta, and the urban city center of Atlanta is in danger of having the same, I think, rotten core phenomenon. Now, I know that they're doing a better job of dealing with that than Detroit is right now, but it seems to me that continuing to invest in things that will um, make that rot worse is a bad decision. Now, the counter-argument to all that is that the only thing that keeps a city attractive and bringing in new people and in some way, shape, or form trying to fight this rot effect may be culture and sports. So you may be making an argument that the investment in this is actually the only thing that could keep this thing from cratering. I'm not sure that's true for MLS soccer. I'm not sure that that draw is enough to, you know, I was thinking about moving to Atlanta, but I'm not going to do it because there's no MLS soccer team. <laughs> right. Said no one ever. Yeah. But uh, so I think I think we're going to look back at this in the same way that we are looking back at some of these big signings, which is to say, you know, you just put the wrong amount of money into this problem. Uh, once again, Alan Smith, I would like to file a grievance against you for <laughs> doing research into the city of Atlanta. I didn't. I didn't do research. <laughs> I just happened to have family who lived there. Oh, okay. Fair enough. I, I'm still going to call that research <laughs> because I feel bad about myself. <laughs> That'll do it for the Jeff Tackett Franchise Report, ladies and gentlemen. Stay tuned for the seventh inning sketch coming up next.
You're listening to Baltimoreans, the home of the all-weather fan. I'm Sam Dingman, and as you heard at the top of the show, we've managed to get our hands on a brand new, previously unreleased audio recording. Peter Angelos, the owner of the Baltimore Orioles, has recently started keeping a private audio journal, and we've gone to great lengths to bring you those recordings tonight. We have to warn you, morons, you may find what you hear to be disturbing, even nauseating. Also, many Bothans died to bring us this information, so listen with all of that in mind. 4th April, 2014, 8.46 a.m. Have successfully reconfigured computer desktop to display a photograph of a parrot. I'm reminded of a trip to the Galapagos, which I took in 1978 with the fair Amber Redstone, a fellow associate of Alderberg, Rudrow, Dorf, and Hepler LLP. We made love on the veranda of a straw hut. Georgia knows nothing of this. If she finds this recording, my marriage would be ruined. And yet, on some level, clearly I am making the recording because I desire some manner of permanent record, not only of my ill-fated romance with Amber Redstone, but many other personal matters. My enduring love of Dutch warm-blood horses. My ability to recite the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock from memory. My love of parrots. Parrots like this one, displayed before me on my computer screen as I speak these words. I will call him Gershwin. 11th April 2014, 4.12pm. I am currently seated at the bar at Dempsey's Brew Pub. My secretary, Eileen, informed me earlier today that I own approximately 52% of this establishment by extension of my ownership of the Baltimore Orioles. As such, I am currently consuming a vodka gimlet that, once paid for, will have not only created a favorable tingling behind my temples, but also been directly reinvested in the broadening of my fortune. Clever work, Angelos, old boy. Clever work, indeed. Here's to me, friends. Who the hell are you? Why, I'm I'm Peter Angelos, of course. Ah, Check, please. 17th April, 2014, 6.08 a.m. Out for a brisk walk before breakfast. The air is bracing this morning, but smells... Well, it smells wonderful. Almost... Almost like apples. Do you know that wonderful phenomenon when the air positively reeks of an unplaceable sweetness? I am reminded suddenly of something that Amber once said to me. At around this time of the morning, as we lay nude in the burgeoning Isabella Island dawn. Peter, she said, I'd like to take a tour of Punta Lido Lighthouse today. But that's foolish, I told her. There's a lighthouse right here on Isabella Island. Yes, she replied, but that one hardly compares in terms of craftsmanship, and the light that emanates from Punta Lido is said to be so warm and bright as to give wayward sailors hope that they would one day find their way home. But I just it just seems so impractical, Amber. When we have a lighthouse here and, well, I suppose I'd just rather not invest all that time and money in getting over to San Cristobal Island for something that we have a very reasonable facsimile of right here. Amber was quiet for a long time. And her hair, I remember, it smelled so, so very sweet. It smelled like, like apples. 
like this smell today, this morning. It, it almost seems foolish to say, but I, I wonder if she's nearby. Not literally nearby, necessarily, but, but in, in, in general. Perhaps it isn't so bad as I've, always, as I've always feared, that the last I would see of her was that quivering lip and those glistening tears upon her soft cheeks as we parted ways in the Delta Terminal at BWI. Perhaps, and I, I do feel like a silly man saying all this out loud, but perhaps this fruity aroma is her way of calling out to me. From, I don't know, Anne Arundel County, maybe. Or Towson. Actually, I think she may have become a college professor, so perhaps College Park. If only there were some way to track... Eileen, take an action item to show me how to set up a Google Plus account. 23rd April, 2014, 11.19am. I have just concluded a most unpleasant conversation with Dan Duquette. I don't know how many times I've told him not to enter my office between the hours of 11 and 12 while I'm working with my Aikido instructor. I was so startled by his entrance that I nearly dealt a fatal blow to the solar plexus. As if that wasn't bad enough, he proceeded to ask me if I would authorize the funds to sign a portly designated hitter by the name of Kendris Morales. I haven't really been following things as closely as I should, but evidently the team has encountered some offensive issues early in the season. Well, I said, I'm sorry to hear that, but unless I'm mistaken, we already have that fellow, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Bartholomew or uh, uh, Prescott. I'm going to assume you're talking about Steve Pierce, said Dan, and frankly, that's an absurd comparison. Pierce, I said, of course. How could I forget the man who shares a surname with my favorite president? Anyway, why can't we just have Franklin be our designated hitter? The problem... Dan said, is that we've had to move the gentleman we thought was going to be our designated hitter into a full-time role as our left fielder, because the chap we brought in to do that turns out to be devoid of talent. As for Steve Pierce, he's barely talented enough to be a pinch hitter. Well, I'm very sorry, Dan, I replied. I'm afraid I just don't see the wisdom of investing more money in getting another designated hitter when we have a reasonably and, dare I say, fairly presidential facsimile right here in the dugout. Besides, I don't trust this Morales character. I seem to recall he went by Kendry when he first came up, and has only recently decided he wants to be called Kendris. Are we sure his agent isn't charging us for that extra S? Faced with my question, Dan was quiet for a long time. Finally, he spoke. Is that supposed to be a joke? he asked. No, I said. Did it sound like one? Eventually Dan left, and I resumed practicing my reverse chokehold. And then Eileen came in and left a post note on my desk. She left, as she always does, without speaking. Actually, no, I suppose I ought to see what it says. It says, Amber. 24th of April, 2014, 9.14pm. I find myself once again... Seated confidently astride a bar stool here at Dempsey's, which I would like to remind you that I own. I've, well, I've suffice it to say that I've made another hearty contribution to the broadening of my own personal fortune this evening, and I find myself once again possessed with a familiar impulse. Excuse me, excuse me, everyone. <coughs> 
Let us go then, you and I. When the evening is spread out against the sky, like a patient etherized upon a table, let us go do certain You know, we keep discovering these incredibly rare audio recordings. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced we should actually play all of them <laughs> on the show. That was upsetting. It was. It was. But, you know, in, in, some, in some strange way, I feel a lot closer to Angelos now. I feel like I, I, know, I know more of him. And in so doing, I think I have a little more empathy for, for the mind of a, of a madman. I can't get there. I can't get to empathy, <laughs> personally. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are mostly out of time <clears throat> on this show. But you know, Sam, it's raining pretty hard out tonight. And um, I got home from work in preparation for this show. And I was getting into the house and I was taking off my jacket. And I turned to hang it up in the bathroom to drip dry and noticed that someone had pinned a mysterious message to my back. It was a strange burlap envelope, which on closer examination contained a note written in alarming hieroglyphics, burned onto what I sincerely hope was not human skin. I sat down and, using Google Translate, which really is a hell of a program, was able to ascertain that I had somehow once again been contacted by our very own intern Scotty, who was off on his round-the-world travels, which means it's time for another edition of Where in the World is Intern Scott Diego? Alan, would you like to hand me the uh, strange fleshy note? Or just this printout from Google Google Plus. Oh, Google oh, Translate. Oh. Yeah, I, that's better. I, I don't want to touch the no, whatever don't. he stuck to your back. Scotty writes, hello, morons, from the hot springs of Iceland. It's been a lovely 72-hour bacchanal here, filled with vodka, pickled sea creatures, and more peyote than you can shake a dancing pygmy at. Wow, Scotty. Be careful out there, buddy. Uh... He continues, but I still managed to listen to last week's episode, and you all made a few mistakes. First of all, you said Ozymandias incorrectly, Alan. Here, let's let Brian Cranston take a shot at it. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, Two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command. Tell that its sculptor well those passions red which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, King of Kings. Oh, okay. So that would mean that the nickname should be Lombardozymandius, not Lombardozymandias. Good catch as usual, Scotty. But wait, there's more. Not only did Scotty somehow manage to get a YouTube video of Brian Cranston reading the Shelley poem Ozymandias into his strange note, he also appears to be checking our email inbox from Iceland, which is more often than we check it from Brooklyn, because he writes, You morons also forgot to include one of the best nicknames ever last week, which came in from Julia. And once again, Scotty is correct. Listener Julia did send us an amazing email. She wrote, 
I have a humble submission for the 2014 Orioles nickname episode. It occurred to me that I had never seen the characters for Wei Yin Chen's name, and so I looked them up. As it turns out, and here she reproduces three Taiwanese characters, Wei Yin Chen is pretty badass. Wei is a common character that means big or great, but Yin is more unusual. While it can also mean great, abundant, or flourishing, meaning his name could be great great, it also means roll of thunder. Therefore, I'm personally going to call him Big Thunder from now on, or maybe even Thunder Mountain, given that he is a giant by Taiwanese standards. This reminds me of my equestrian sister's burning desire to buy a racehorse and name him Thunder Bucket. Great name. My horse breeding and training relatives somehow think you have horse breeding and this is this is a this is an email with a lot of depth here. My horse breeding and training relatives somehow think that this is the equivalent of swinging a black cat by its tail while walking under a ladder on a sidewalk full of cracks. Which reminds me, I should relate the epic story of my cousin being tasked by Brian Fat Wallet Cashman to produce some racehorses for George Steinbrenner. Yes, he was just as much of a cheap racist bastard as one could ever imagine. Wow. So out of that email, Sam, we got an amazing nickname, Thunder Mountain, an amazing story that we yet need to hear, and an amazing series of digressions within that email that truly put Julia in the clouds as a great Baltimorean. I I approve of every single word in (laughs) Julia's email. Um, I wonder if Tommy Hunter is not going to be upset that Wei Yin Chen is called Big Thunder <laughs> instead of him. I think he's probably, uh, I think we, we haven't gotten word from him yet, but I plan any day to hear from Tommy Hunter that Round Mound of Zone Pound is his favorite moniker ever. <laughs> Translation, ladies and gentlemen, Alan has a personal narrative in his mind <laughs> wherein Orioles players who don't listen to this show do and write in to tell us that we're doing a great job. Because we are. (laughs) Speaking of our show, it's written and produced (laughs) by Sam Dingman and Alan Smith and features music by Marshall York, Town Hall, Weather Report, Fish, and behind me now, The Black Crows with Kicking My Heart Around. You can find all the episodes of our show at our website, bemorons.com, or in iTunes, where you can join the other truly moronic individuals who've left us a review. We're also on Twitter, at bmorons. And Sam... Yes. What do you call Henry Arudia when he's starring in a 1981 submarine thriller directed by Wolfgang Peterson? You would call him Henry Das Boot Rudia. And Alan, I want to say that's the best one so far. Good work, sir. Good night. Good work and good night. So just stop kicking my heart. Baltimoreans is a member of the Baltimore Sports Report Network. Find, find more podcasts like this at baltimoresportsreport.com.